Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. We are in a series looking at the parables of Jesus. And last week we learned uh, that leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, he told a number of parables that are referred to as the parables of judgment or the judgment parables. I got a list of those for you here on the screen. We covered the first of those two last week. Um, and today we were going to, so I want to do a little bit of review before we go forward. In the first parable, the parable of the two sons, there's a father who represents God, and the father asks his two sons if they would go out into his vineyard to work. The first one says, um, no, I'm not interested. And then he leaves, and then he kind of has some second thoughts about that, and he ends up going into the vineyard and doing what uh, the father or God had asked him to do. The other son um, says, I'm, I'm, you know, that's fine. I'll be happy to do that. I'll go work in the vineyard for you. But then he doesn't go. And then Jesus turns to the people that he's been speaking to, these religious leaders of Judaism, and he says to them, well, which of the two sons did the will of his father? Which of the two was obedient uh, to God? And so they say, hey, it was the first son. Even though he was delayed in his response, he actually went and did what the father asked of him. And so Jesus concludes verse 32 of that parable, for John the Baptist came to you from God, declaring to you the way of righteousness, but you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe him. They did accept God's message, and so they went forward uh, following him, unlike uh, these religious leaders that Jesus is talking to. In the second parable, the parable of the wicked tenants, in this parable there's a master who represents God, and this master builds a vineyard. A vineyard was a stock metaphor back in the first century for the nation of Israel. So he's sending out, uh, he's cre creating a vineyard for himself, the master is, and he leaves some tenants to... Um, to oversee this vineyard, which was a common arrangement in the first century. When it's time for the master to collect on his investment, the master sends some servants or the Old Testament prophets of God to go and collect on his investment from this, from this vineyard. And uh, the tenants, when, they, when the servants arrive to collect on God's investments, the tenants beat up, kill, and even stone to death some of, these, uh, some of these servants. The master tries again sending more servants, but with the same result. Finally, the master sends his own son, saying, verse 37, surely they will respect my son. And sure enough, they beat up his son and then kill his son. And that's uh, foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. Jesus then concludes the parable by asking these religious leaders what should happen to these tenants, the ones that beat up the servants that God had sent them two different times, the ones that beat up the son of the master. And they say, verse 41, the master will put those wretches to a miserable death, to which Jesus replies, verse 43, you're correct, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to others who will produce its fruits. Now, one more bit of review. I know we're doing a lot of review today, but one more little piece of review that we covered last week, and I don't know that I gave this to the guys at the back, but there was a painting that we saw last week, a couple of them, and they depicted the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. If we have that, great. If not, that's fine. Um, this painting is by David Roberts from 1850. Do we have that painting? No, we don't have that painting. That's okay. Um, any case, you remember it from last week. The original, it's amazing. It was seven feet tall by 10 feet wide. It's a massive painting. I've got a copy of it down in my office. It's like this. Right? But you can see some of the detail that's going on in there. And this painting depicts an awful event known as the destruction of Jerusalem, where 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered by the Roman legions. They encircled the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, they laid siege to the city for four months. The city walls fell, and they killed 1.1 million, carting off into slavery 97,000. And that sets the stage for today's parable. This parable is told on the heels of the two parables that we just reviewed. Jesus tells all three of these back to back to back. All right, so you get the parable of the two sons, 
parable of the wicked tenants, and then finally today's parable, the parable of the wedding feast. All of these parables are designed to rebuke the religious leaders who have been uh, interacting with Jesus, and because of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah, because of their doubting about Jesus as Messiah. Um, and so because of that, Jesus is saying, hey, look, God's judgment is going to come upon you. Today's parable is called the parable of the wedding feast. We're going to be reading the first of three sections in this parable, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 7. A little bit of chunk of scripture here. Y'all hang with me. Here we go. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, to one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. You may be seated. All right, before we dive into any of that, i got a slide for you here. I want to do a breakdown of this parable. This parable is a little bit more complex than some of the other parables that preceded it. This one comes in three different segments or three different acts, if you would. The first act is what we just read. That's verses 1 through 7. Uh, it's what I've titled Rejection and Judgment. So that first little section there covers the rejection of the Jewish people of Jesus as Messiah. And then what results from that? God's judgment. Uh, the second act, that's verses 1 through 7. The second act is what I'm calling expanded invitation. God can't get folks that he initially invited to come and attend this wedding feast. And so he's going to go find some people who will accept the invitation. And that's verses 8 through 10. The third act is what I'm calling black tie required. Hopefully that'll make sense for you here in just a little bit. That's verses 11 through 13. There's an incidence where one of the guests at the party, we'll see this in just a bit, uh, doesn't have on the proper attire. Uh, he doesn't have on his black tie, and it's a black tie affair, or in this case, it's a white wedding garment. And so because of that, he's kicked out of the party. All right, so that's where we're going. Let's dive in at verse 1, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The them are these Jewish religious leaders that Jesus has been interacting with now for about a chapter. Um, the chief priests and the elders, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, um, and so he says to them, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now let's be clear here at the outset that the king in this story, just like the father in the first parable, just like the master in the second parable, here in the third parable, the king is representative of God himself. The king has a son. The son is representative of Jesus, Jesus Christ. So hear that verse again, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, God, who had a wedding feast for his son, Jesus, Verse 3, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Invitations go out, RSVPs are returned, and everybody sends back their regrets. Not interested. Verse 4, again, the king sent other servants. He sent more servants to invite these guests. Would you agree that God is being persistent? I mean, you'd think one invitation was enough. I'm not interested, and so, okay, well, then I'll move on to somebody else. But no, this king, God, is trying to get these people to come to his party, trying to come, trying to respond to the invitation. And these servants deliver the message from the king, still in verse 4. Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared dinner. Dinner is ready. It is on the table. It is hot. Come and eat. 
He says, I've got my oxen, my fat calves. Everything's been slaughtered. In other words, the meal is ready. The king is working overtime here to try and get people to accept the invitation. He's extending to these people the invitation, but they're still hedging. Now, Now notice from the time that Jesus speaks these words, here at the last week of his life, obviously Jesus lived on, he resurrected from the dead. But the week leading up to uh, the week of Passover, the week that he would be crucified, from that point until those soldiers arrive and encircle the city of Jerusalem is 40 years, a generation by Jewish reckoning. And so in 40 years, God gives the Jewish people, after they hear the preaching of the, of the disciples, after they hear the proclamation of the gospel, he gives them 40 years from this point of him telling this parable to Get it, get it together, right? To hear the invitation and to respond to the invitation. Enough, more than enough opportunity for them to do so. Um, and verse 5, so what do they do? How do they respond? Verse 5, but they paid no attention and went back to doing what they were doing. They just ignored God's messengers. I hear what you're saying, but I'm not interested. Not buying it. The disciples were out preaching and Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. The Jewish people had heard that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Many of them had even witnessed Jesus resurrected from the dead. Still not buying it. Not interested. Not interested in what you're selling. And so, uh, verse 6, But some of the people even went so far as to turn violent toward the uh, messengers of the king. They re- the rest seized the king's servants, treated them shamefully, and even killed them. This reminds me of what the Apostle Paul had done back before he had come to faith in Christ. He was out persecuting the Christians. He was, uh, even at one point, he, he stood there as Stephen was stoned to death and put the people up to it. And so he stoned um, Stephen to death. He was persecuting the church of Christ. Peter was even crucified upside down for his faith. What's the response? What does God think of this? Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, there is a debate amongst the academics. I will spare you all the details. Well, no, I'm going to give you my details. But I'll spare you all the conversation and the reasons that they, that they um, present. There's a, a, a debate as to whether or not that particular verse is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, where it says that he got, and the king burned their city. Well, is he talking about Jerusalem, or is this just sort of a coincidence of details? Personally, I don't think it's a coincidence. Here's the Lord Jesus, very deliberately, telling these religious leaders that God is going to judge them. Jesus, this is a moment of seriousness. Uh, Jesus is laying it out there for them. that, Hey, gang, if you don't get on board with me, here's, there's terrible things that are coming your way. Plus, here we are at the end of Matthew's gospel, where literally we are just, give you the illustration, one page turn away from Jesus describing the destruction of Jerusalem. Literally, just a page turn away of Jesus describing the destruction of this great city. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 2, Jesus said, His disciples had just been saying, Hey, Jesus, do you see this temple? I mean, it's amazing. Look at all this structure and how beautiful everything is. And Jesus says to them, um, Truly I say to you, gang, there will not be one stone left upon another uh, that will not be thrown down. And that's exactly what the Romans did. They came in, they laid siege to the city, they broke through the city walls, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered, and they literally cleaned the temple site of every single stone. All they left was the slab. Every stone, not one stone was left on another, just as Jesus had predicted. Friends, as it would be irresponsible for us, as students of the scriptures, 
to not take into account the surrounding material, right? Illustration. The surrounding material. In chapter 23, I got a slide for you here. Uh, Jesus pronounces seven woes. If you just flip the page, he pronounces seven woes against scribes and Pharisees, predicting again God's judgment that's coming. And this theme of judgment that began back in chapter 21 with the first of these parables, followed by another parable, followed by this parable today, and then the seven woes toward these guys, and then the destruction of Jerusalem that's, um, that's pronounced, and then in verse 25, more parables about judgment. Again, it would be irresponsible for us to miss that, in my humble opinion. If we were to not link these parables to the destruction of Jerusalem, described in Matthew chapter 24, it would shock Matthew, who compiled this material, who's going, I made that for you as plain as the nose on the end of your face. How could you possibly not connect the dots between what Jesus is talking about here, the, the parables of judgment, and the destruction of Jerusalem? Um, If we do miss it, it is because we are reading these parables in isolation. We're just looking at the parable, thinking we know what it means, rather than also taking into account the surrounding material that Matthew has compiled. Verse 8, act number 2, expanded invitation. uh, Verse 8, then the king said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. In other words, this is an open invitation. Jesus is inviting everybody. Inclusive invitation. Just, it's, it's any, come one, come all, right? Verse 10, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, if you flip back with me, if you would, because remember, these parables are told in succession. Flip back with me, if you would, to the first parable, parable number one, Matthew 21 and verse 32. We read this verse just at the beginning. Um, I've created a slide here, actually, that shows, I think, go ahead and do the next slide. A slide. Yeah, okay, there we go. So I've created a slide here that takes the conclusion of the first parable, Jesus' statement there in verse 32, the conclusion of the second parable, um, and then the conclusion of the third parable and just places them all alongside one another. So we can see this theme of expanded invitation pop out. Jesus says in verse 32, why is it, this is the conclusion of the first parable, that John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, tax collector Matthew right here, sitting right here next to me, he accepted the invitation. Why is it that the prostitutes, Mary Magdalene, who used to live in this former way of life, but she doesn't anymore, why is it that you have not, um, they, that they believe but you don't? And then again in verse 43, at the conclusion of the second parable, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it'll be given to people, Mary Magdalene, who will produce its fruits. Now flip back to the wedding feast parable, Matthew 22 and verse 10. You see that here on the screen on that far right. And you begin to pick up on this common theme. Certainly there's the theme of judgment that runs through these parables, but there's also this common theme of an expanded invitation that this is welcome the gospel is open and the invitation to heaven is given to everyone both tax collectors and prostitutes everyone verse 10 and those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good so the wedding hall was filled with guests notice that the criteria for attending the wedding feast was not perfect church attendance right that's not a requirement for getting into heaven 
nor was perfect behavior, nor was having pristine 1040s. It's great to have pristine 1040s. You, know, you don't have to sweat that, worry about something to come back on you years later. But nevertheless, pristine 1040s are not a requirement for getting into heaven. God's invitation, we're talking about here heaven, God's invitation is to everyone. It doesn't matter if your life has been exemplary, like some of the disciples, or if it's been a total mess, like the tax collector and the prostitute. Both bad and good, all are invited and all get into heaven. And the criteria for getting into heaven has nothing to do with your behavior. All you got to do is accept the invitation. Notice also that the kingdom of heaven is being taken away from the Jews. That is not, and I don't mean, I mean the Jews culturally. I mean unbelieving Jews. People who decided, just like any Gentile, he says, you know what, I reject Jesus. People who said, hey, I don't think he's the Messiah. People who are saying, I'm not looking to him to be the way that I'm going to get into heaven, my means for gaining access to heaven. People who mark their RSVP regret. And so God says, well, fine. Matthew 22 and verse 10, finding people to fill my kingdom, that's not a problem. I can do that. I can fill the wedding hall with guests. Some of them you may think are worthy. Some of them you may think are unworthy. Folks that the world calls bad. But hey, in my kingdom, everyone is welcome. The rabbis of Jesus' day preached a gospel of haves and have-nots. Jesus, on the other hand, preached a gospel of inclusivity. And that's why sinners like Matthew, who wrote this gospel, were so attracted to him. Jesus said, John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, what's the next word? Whoever, whosoever. You say, what's whosoever mean? It means whosoever. It means anybody believes in him, should not perish, but will have eternal life. When it comes to gaining access to heaven, friends, the invitation is open to everyone. You say, Gordon, does that mean that it doesn't matter how I live, that like it's open to me and I can just keep doing my tax collecting, that Jesus just told Matthew, the tax collector, to just go back to doing his tax collecting, keep cheating people out of their livelihoods, keep uh, throwing big blowout parties, you know, just keep doing that. Should Matthew just keep doing that? Should, should Mary Magdalene just keep doing the things that she was doing before? No, Jesus is not saying that at all. Rather, Jesus called Matthew to repentance. He called Matthew to a changed life, just like he's calling all of us to a changed life. Paul gives this same message to the Christians in Rome. Some of them were wondering if they could continue in their old lifestyle, something that the Bible calls sin. Paul writes Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we, content, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. That means no. How could we who died to sin still live in it? So the point is, Acts chapter, or I'm sorry, Act number two, the invitation is expanded through Jesus to everyone, but we don't continue to sin because those sins are forgiven. That would be an affront to the mercy and to the grace of God. Act number three, verse 11. Matthew chapter 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now, back in Bible times, uh, if you went to a wedding, you had to, the people were white. Right? We go to a funeral, we wear black in our culture today. Back then, they went to a wedding, they all wore white. The king was walking around the banquet hall. It's a black tie affair, or in this case, a white wedding garment. And he spots a guy who's not wearing a black tie or not wearing a white wedding garment. This fellow is wearing something else. Maybe he's got his blue jeans on. Maybe he's even got a suit on. I, I don't know what he's got on, but he doesn't have on the proper attire for the wedding. What does the king do? How does the king respond? Verse 12, he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? 
I mean, who let you in? Don't you know? Isn't it obvious as you look around that everybody else is wearing white wedding garments, but you don't have one on? That's a disqualifier for being here. You see, the white wedding garment was the price of admission. You can't be at the wedding feast. You can't get into heaven without your white wedding garment. That's the point that Jesus is making here. When the king confronted the man, verse 12, says the man was speechless. He knew he didn't have an argument to make. Verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind that fellow hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, and where that guy's going, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a biblical reference to a place that we know of as hell. The king says, or God says, no wedding garment. That's a one-way stop to weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, well, that is our treatment of this text for today, and so that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question that we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Great question. We'll see if we can answer that. Everybody doing okay? Did you get enough coffee this morning? I got one thumbs up. That's good. Um, you know, I could, I could easily spend an hour up here connecting all the dots, between, and I won't. <laughs> Spending an hour uh, connecting all the dots between this parable and your life and mine and, and, and talking about the application. But some of the points of application from this parable to your life and mine, we've covered in previous weeks. And so rather than replow furrow ground, I think it's helpful for us to just take a look at what parts of this parable are new to us, offer new teachings that the other two perhaps did not. And those specifically, those new concepts specifically come in the third act, what we call black tie required, the third act of this particular parable. So let's take a look at that. In act number three, Jesus teaches his audience and us that there is only one way to get into the wedding feast. Do you see that? you got to wear the white wedding garment. Without the white wedding garment, no admittance. You're kicked out. Theologians call this the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. Look at verse 12. The exclusivity of Christ for salvation. The king looks over at this fellow who wants to be a part of the wedding feast who wants to get into heaven, and the king God says to the man, friend, how did you get in here? Who let you in here without a white wedding garment? Don't you know that that is what is required for admittance? <clears throat> Remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to people who have categorically denied, have categorically rejected Jesus as their Savior, rejected him as Messiah. But even worse, not only is the punishment that's coming their way going to be physical, right? It's going to affect them in the material realm. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The city of, or the nation of Israel is going to be destroyed by the Roman legions. But also, in an eternal sense, there is separation from God that is coming to these people. They are going to be cast into outer darkness, a place where people experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, everyone's invited. But to get into the party, to get into the wedding feast, to get into heaven, you got to come God's way. And God's way is through believing in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, your Lord and your Savior. Paul spells this out when he writes Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... The result of that is you will be saved. You say, Gordon, this sounds, I thought you were saying that Jesus was inviting everyone. He's an inclusivist. But now all of a sudden it sounds like he's an exclusivist. Well, you're right. Everyone's invited. 
But you got to accept the invitation. And the only way to accept the invitation is to invite Jesus into your life. Do I wish that there were many ways to heaven? Sure I do. I mean, I want to tweak the system in my favor, right? And in the favor of all of humanity. I want to do that. I want to create as many pathways to God as possible and as many options for eternal life as there are people to make that choice. But these are the rules that God has established. He sent his one and only son here to the earth. He let him go to the cross and be sacrificed for your sins and mine. And God is not about ready to let some other system be the way for you or I to get to heaven. Listen to these scriptures, Acts chapter 4 and verse 11. The disciples were convinced of this. This is Jesus. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. John's gospel, John writes, Jesus saying, John 3 and verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see eternal life but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3 and verse 18, just a few verses earlier, Jesus said, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. That's where you get it, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not have the Son does not have eternal life. Friends, this is what I like to call unequivocal language, right? It, there's no whatabouts that you can insert between the words of these pages. It's just, this is the way it is. God says there's one way, and Jesus is that way. And then again, Jesus' words in today's parable, Matthew 22 and verse 12, and God, the king, said to him, friend, how did you get in here? I mean, who let you in without white wedding garments. You know, the world is full of isms and ologies that promise that they know the way to eternal life in heaven. And uh, what we learn here in act number three of this parable and elsewhere in the New Testament is that there is only one way to get to heaven and that that way is through Jesus. Jesus said, John 14 and verse six, for I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father. Where's the Father? The Father's in heaven. No one gets into heaven but through me. Friends, there will be a lot of disappointed people standing at heaven's gates one day. People who are standing speechless when they discover that Jesus is the only way in. What difference does that make to your life and to mine? Number one, if you've yet to avail yourself of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Please know, Jesus is telling you, he's warning you here, that you stand condemned. Your future as it stands right now is outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> when you, I know you're not at that point yet, right? You haven't breathed your last yet. But when you do breathe your last, if this is the way you go into eternity, not believing in Jesus, not trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, then friends, when you do breathe your last, that's what waits for you on the other side of eternity. If you're still struggling to believe that Jesus really is, you say, Gordon, I'm, I'm just not 100% convinced that Jesus is the one and only way to heaven. Well, let me, let me just nudge you a little bit, okay, in that direction. I'm not trying to scare you into it, although that sometimes that's what we need, right? We need a little bit of a dose of reality. 
but also I want to nudge you in that direction. I want to speak to your intellectual mind for just a moment. Again, there are lots of people throughout, throughout history, world history, who have said they knew the way to heaven. But there's only one who actually rose from the dead. We have a saying around here that goes, if you follow a dead Savior, expect to end up just like him. But we follow a living Savior, therefore we expect to end up just like him. Jesus is our living Savior, friends. Put your faith and trust in him today. Something for you to think about. Number two, and on the other point here today, what difference does this make to your life and to mine? Friends, there are people that you and I interact with every day who have yet to confess Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. People who have yet to put their faith and trust for eternity in the work that he accomplished on the cross. And until they do, they stand condemned. Until they do, they are heading for a train wreck in eternity. It may be a coworker, It may be a family member. It may be a cousin. It may be a, a good friend of yours. You name it. Everyone wants to go to heaven. I've never met anybody that said, no, I'm not interested in heaven. I mean, there may be somebody out there, but I hadn't met that person yet. Even in the back of their mind, I think they're like, yeah, I, I, I've said that with my mouth, but I really want to go to heaven. I never really met anybody that thought that way. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but again, we've got to come God's way. So what does that mean for us if you're a believer today? Well, it means that we need to be willing to engage in these conversations. We have in the very least to encourage these people, hey, well, just read what Jesus said in the Bible. I mean, consider it for yourself and know that he actually rose from the dead. He knew what he was talking about. Uh, maybe even invite them to a church. Doesn't have to be this church. Just tell, hey, do you have a church that you connect with? You remember growing up in? Maybe you ought to go there sometime. It'd be great for you to go there. Hear what they're talking about. Friends, I don't like sticking my nose in other people's business any more than anyone else does. And I know religious beliefs can be a prickly subject. But when the stakes are this high, we have got to be willing to press the topic. I think we're going to be surprised more often than not at the responses that we get. I mean, yeah, some people will respond with a prickly cactus response, but I think more people are open to talking about God uh, than we realize. And a lot of the reason why perhaps we think they're not is because of our own apprehension to bring the topic up. So pray about it and then work up the nerve to bring the subject. I think you will be pleasantly surprised at the responses that you get, especially if you're willing to take a posture of listening. Well, just tell me what you think. Tell me what you believe. And then come in behind that with, hey, how about John chapter 3 and verse 16? How about John chapter 3 and verse 18? How about 1 John chapter 5 verses 11 and 12? You read it for yourself. Tell me if that squares with what you're thinking. Friends, Jesus is the way. Amen? Jesus is the way. There is no other way. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you so much for laying it out there for us. You laid it out there for these religious leaders that you were speaking to. Matthew recorded it in this canon, in this book that we know of as the Bible, for us to be able to respond to, for us to hear the truth and then to respond to that truth. Lord, if there's anybody here today who would say, Lord, if I'm, as I'm looking at my life and the thing that I'm trusting in to get me into heaven, it's not you. And so, Jesus, if they would like to put their faith and their trust in you, may they know just in the quiet moments of communion right now, Lord, that they can turn to you for the forgiveness of, your, of their sins. Lord, they can speak up afterwards and say, hey, look, I want to meet you in the waters of baptism sometime soon. I want to make that decision I've made privately a public decision. And so, Jesus, we just commit to you these coming moments. Lord Jesus, there are people in all of our lives 
who have not professed you as Savior and Lord. Lord, put a burden on our heart to pray for them. Give us courage to press the topic. Lord, the opportunities abound. May we be found faithful to open our mouths and to speak truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. I've got a friend Closer than a brother There is no judgment Oh, how he loves